this is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast imperiously irrigating the right to tell the story of what all the fuss is about concerning the musical Hamilton. This is Mark Litzenmeyer, and I will not throw away my extensive novelty shot glass collection. This is Erica Spires, and when this ends, you'll all realize it was my podcast all along. And I'm Brian Hurt, and not to lord my Hamilton trivia over the rest of you, but little known fact, based on a true story. I'm Sam Seamock, and I'm just here for the drama. <laughs> Welcome, Sam. Welcome, Sam. Glad to have you. Ah, glad to be here. Thank you. Who are you, and what are your credentials to talk about musicals? I've been in New York City for about 10 years now. I'm a, a musical theater actor. I was recently on Broadway in Carousel with Erica here. Been in the last few years, I was in the national tours of The King and I and My Fair Lady. I was on My Fair Lady when the coronavirus pandemic hit, and we were performing in Columbus, Ohio, and, and then we've been on hiatus ever since. It was mid-March. Well, it's an ill wind that blows nobody good, right? And the pandemic is sure getting us great guests like you that we would not get oh. otherwise. So <laughs> thanks. Glad to have you. Sam and I are two of the lucky people right now who are still on, a, on insurance through our employer. So times is getting dire for actors amongst many other people, but we're lucky to still be insured at this point. I mean, I just think that's kind of relevant only because we're talking about Hamilton, which is a great success. And I think oftentimes you see people looking at something like Hamilton and see where those stars have gone from their original Broadway cast, which is certainly a huge triumph and success within itself. And so many of them now have then gone into film and TV, making a lot of money. And I think that sometimes people forget that there are a ton of other people backstage or in the wings waiting to go on who are employed at a, a much lower level, right? Even though they are in the professional world. So it's great that this show is getting so much traction and hopefully it will bring more love for the theater community. Well, certainly giving the opportunity for people to see some theater, this is the only thing we get to see during the pandemic. It apparently was rushed to Disney Plus to allow that to happen. All right, who's going to set up Hamilton for our listeners who have never heard of it? Brian, you're really good at that. Go for it. <laughs> I'm just good at reminding us to do it. You're good at summing things up. It's the writer in you. Can we say something about the dates involved? I was a little surprised. I wasn't really clear what a slow rise this had. That the It was 2009 where Emmanuel Miranda had a different musical that was successful and in the Heights and was invited to the White House and performed one song of this thing that was in process, which was one of the first songs from Hamilton. And that so impressed people that then, you know, that started a, what, six-year-long writing and development cycle before it actually opened, which is, seems unusual for it to have that much buzz that far in advance and yet still have the leisure to develop the thing to perfection. It being the Broadway musical Hamilton, based on the life and death of American Revolutionary and first... Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, who appears on the $10 bill. And if you haven't heard of this musical, honestly, I'm not sure why you're listening to any of our podcast episodes because you're living in a hole or under a rock or on Mars. But we're glad to have you. Welcome, first time listener. So how'd you guys like it? It's okay. <laughs> well, actually, raise our hands for those on listening on the podcast. Two Among Us has seen this on stage. Again, for those listening on the podcast, Sam and <laughs> Erica both have, Mark and I have not. All right, now we're going to choose sides and fight. Since we have two experienced musical theater people who have seen this live and who have seen many, many more other shows, 
does this deserve the accolades that it is getting? Or is it only so spectacular to us noobs because we don't appreciate how every modern Broadway show has that much detail work into it? Go for it, CMAC. I think it is deserving of the hype. I think it's deserving of the positive critique that it gets. And, you know, we'll get into it later, but how well a story that was told three years ago holds up today in a much different political climate. We have all those articles that we read, but it's an excellent piece of theater. When you take it at face value, it's very entertaining. It accomplishes its mission of telling this story in the way that it wants to tell it. But when you look at it in the span of musical theater, there are musicals that come along every generation or so that kind of change the way that people approach the art form. And I think about Stephen Sondheim's Company is one that it was the first concept musical is what they call it, where it sort of jumps around from vignette to vignette. And instead of telling a linear story from start to finish, A to B to all the way to Z, I think of Hair. When did Hair come out? Was that the early 70s? Hair was this injection of, they took musical theater, injected it with wartime revolutionary rock, which was very different. It wasn't all Kander and Ebb, Rodgers and Hammerstein. And then I think of Rent. Rent came out in the 90s. It addressed the AIDS crisis. It did this with this sort of angsty, not at all musical theater, pop rock. These shows come along and they change the game in terms of narrative structure and in terms of the musical composition that goes into them. And that affects the way that the art form is approached from that point on. And I think that Hamilton has done that. It is continuing to do that by incorporating rap into the genre, which I would argue no other piece, with the exception of maybe some parts of In the Heights, also written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Those two shows are the only ones that have effectively incorporated rap, I believe. And I think the words you're trying to look for, Sam, when it comes to hair is, I'd call it an American tribal love rock musical. But for sure, that's just me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with Sam. When I first heard of Hamilton, and there was like this huge buzz about it. It was all about the music, right? Because people who couldn't afford to see it, which was most people, got the album and they were just loving the music. I think that's the first thing that a great musical should have is a great score. But it was also telling a story that had been told in other musicals before, like 1776 is an example of that. Not exactly the same story, but set in the same time period, also a political musical. But yeah, Lin-Manuel did something really amazing with it. And it's entertaining as all get out. The dance involved is also really impressive, but it feels very new. It feels very fresh. It's incorporated into so many of the elements, like the bullet, for example, and probably most famously in this one. It's funny, if you think about musical theater, A friend of mine has posited that because it takes so long for a musical to be developed, that musical theater tends to be about 15 to 20 years sometimes behind in terms of popular music. So like hip hop and rap music has been popular definitely since the 90s, right? And we're just now seeing it on Broadway and it feels so transformative. So I think it's great that he can not only take something that he developed over such a long time, but it still feels like new and fresh, even though... It's music that became popular much longer ago than that. Right. It's like Tupac and Biggie. It's not Kendrick Lamar references. It's all Notorious B.I.G. references and this old school rap. It's not current rap. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Plant your flag, Mark. Where are you on Hamilton? So I really appreciate it now. You know, this is the first time I actually saw it two days ago. I'd spent 
years sort of on the fringes because of my kids enjoying the soundtrack. And I guess I wanted to talk about it maybe as a piece of music out in the culture before we even get to the musical, because this is how most people experienced it for years. And it wasn't until a long car trip that I actually heard the whole thing in a row, in which point it actually made sense. Before that, it was like everything else my kids play at me and like the way people listen to music nowadays, which is individual songs. And in fact... (laughs) Can you guess the one song that my son in particular really focused in on and played a million times? For somebody that doesn't like rap or is not necessarily... So is it just the King George song? Yes, the I'll Be Back song, which is so (laughs) hilarious by itself, but it's so unrepresented, you know, and it's obviously... It's the contrast song, right, yeah. Ironic, and so it was not representative. And then some of the first that I heard... Of the other things was, sorry, what does the guy say at the beginning of the wedding scene? Let me tell you something about it. What's, what the hell is the quote? <laughs> <laughs> that's, no, that's what I'm talking about. So like, that's what I heard out of context. And like, this sucks. Like, I don't, this is <laughs> because it was a joyous celebration of something in a tradition with some humor to it. It just sounded like a cliche to me hearing that in isolation. Hmm. You know, as soon as I heard that the rest of Hamilton was this rap, like, I don't know, it was a long time before I wanted anything to do with it, just because I was not, rap is just one of the forms of music that has taken me the longest to appreciate. (laughs) It's only in the last few years, really. And then I was also hearing that, well, even as rap, this is not real rap, like actual rap fans don't like this. This is like rap that has gotten out to middle-aged white people and teen girls, like, or something like, I don't know, there was something, as somebody who's very into rock and roll and very into I want to say singer-songwriter-based music. The whole idea of musical theater imposing itself, becoming more popular than even like crummy pop songs I'm not fond of, but I can forgive. But to just reject the entire enterprise of rock and roll and the radio and say, no, no, I want musical theater music. There's something that just has always rubbed me the wrong way. So that's been a, it's something to overcome. So that's just a little of my journey. I have two thoughts on that. One... I think that art is cyclical and musical theater for the longest time was the generator of pop songs. It goes back to Irving Berlin and Cole Porter in the 1920s, 1930s, into Rodgers and Hammerstein in the 40s and 50s. You can hear Frank Sinatra sing his version of Send in the Clowns. That's from a musical. All these songs from My Favorite Things, from The Sound of Music, through Aquarius, from Hair, that's all generated by musical theater. And so because musical theater sort of entered this downward slope of popularity in the 80s and 90s, people in our generation think of it as sort of this fringe art form. But in the history of American pop culture, it's actually been an incredibly influential art form. And it's been a part of our national artistic identity. But our generation doesn't necessarily think of it that way because of its lack of popularity or mainstream popularity during our childhood. But it's gotten back up to the point where now the Hamilton mixtape has come out and, you know, Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, Be More Chill have sort of infected, you know, injected themselves into this sort of pop culture mainstream in ways that previous musicals haven't. And that's because of social media and online mediums like, you know, Spotify and having access to these things online that kids are able to experience what I could only experience when I was a kid by going to a record store and finding the musical theater section and kind of like figuring out which CD I could afford to buy for $4 that day. Sam, you're not that old that you could find $4 CDs. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) They're in the the budget bin. I I love the budget bin. I bought a lot of stuff in the budget bin. (laughs) 
<laughs> and in the, in the 90s and early 2000s, the budget bin was full of musical theater. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Okay, yeah. This is almost a separate topic, but the idea of the budget bin that somebody really believed in this enough to like make a million copies of it, but yet it didn't quite strike the mainstream, which is not anything to disrespect for me. So I've found a lot of choice artists through the budget bin. Brian, what did you think? Like Mark, I did not see the musical. I only saw it on Disney+. Plus. Unlike Mark, I studiously avoided the music before seeing it. When I'm thinking I might see something, I just I don't want to hear the music ahead of time. That's how I was with Book of Mormon. And I know it's harder to enter a musical without having heard something because you need to listen to music several times to really appreciate it. That being said, when I went to watch this one, about 20 minutes in, I had to quote Joseph II, the emperor in the movie Amadeus. Too many notes, Mozart, but to paraphrase, too many words, Lin-Manuel. It was fine. It was a lot to take in, two and a half hours of that coming at you. I think knowing the music probably would have helped me because I was processing so much the first time through. Also, I don't have a great relationship with filmed theater, and I know we're going to talk about that, but I've seen a bunch of it, and I feel like live theater is always a completely different experience, and I don't feel like I'm getting it in any way, the way that I am when I'm in the moment. And I also don't feel like I'm getting a properly filmed musical the way that Love It or Hate It, the Les Mis one that we saw recently with uh, Hugh Jackman, who was yeah. in that. It wasn't great, but it was a spectacle you know, movie experience. And this was kind of neither. And I might feel differently if I had seen this thing on Disney Plus in a movie theater. But the truth is I've seen other things, other plays and other musicals on the big screen, the ones filmed from New York and London that they show at Art House movies. And it's not replicating the experience in any way. I think there's got to be a third thing or a new thing where they just put a 3D camera up in the balcony where I can afford tickets. And I would just put goggles on and I would have the experience of someone in the really shitty seats watching the musical. Maybe that would finally replicate it for me. I don't know. And maybe the, the smell of perfume I couldn't stand and someone coughing and like, all those things that vibrating of a cell phone of someone who didn't really take that warning seriously from the king. I've seen Hamilton twice in theaters. I got very lucky. I paid an average of $30 per ticket. The first time a friend of mine won the lottery. So those are $10 tickets. We set up front and that was on Broadway and it was spectacular. And then the second time I was further back in the house in like a slightly obstructed view seat that they don't normally sell because a friend of mine was a company manager in Chicago. So I got a $50 ticket then. I didn't care that it was slightly obstructed because I had already seen the show. I was just there more so for the experience and to hear it again and experience it again. With a different cast? Completely different cast. Yeah. The Broadway cast and then there was the Chicago cast. They were open at the same time. So very different takes. One thing that was really cool about that, and we've talked about this a little bit, I think, with um, artistic licenses, I saw very different characters, very different individuals who play the same characters. And I was able to actually see that with each. And that's really unique in musical theater, especially in a show that can become such a machine and you have to keep consistency with it. I have to say like that Chicago cast felt completely different from the New York cast. And I'm sure that the touring casts have been different as well. I assume that that's partially because Lin-Manuel is, he seems to me to be a person who encourages individuality. Like he picked Javier Munoz to replace him in the lead role after he left Broadway. And that's who I saw in it. And he's a very different Hamilton than Lin-Manuel. And I think that's the way to do it. You have to find somebody who keeps the spirit of that character, but can also do their own awesome thing with it. But that being said, 
I loved this version. I think that the filming was spectacular. It showed you some really great angles, but also I felt very similar to the first time I saw it in New York where I was close enough to see their facial expressions and feel like I was a part of it. So I think the direction was fantastic and the sound design was incredible. What'd you think, Sam? So I only saw it once and I saw it fairly recently, you know, in the span of the life of the show. I did not see the original cast. When did I see it? Maybe two years ago. I saw one of the replacement casts. Post Javier. I did not see Javier. Who did I see in the role? I know Daniel Breaker was Aaron Burr. I saw Brandon Victor Dixon as Burr. He was great. Yeah, it was a, an excellent production. You know, it's a beautiful show. I remember listening to the album, you know, long after it came out, because I was like you, Brian, I was thinking like, you know, I don't want to listen to it until I see it. And as ticket prices kept rising, I was like, looks like I'm not going to see it anytime soon, so I might as well listen to it. And I listened to it religiously. You know, it was just, I was hooked on it for a long time. And all I could think when I was listening to it was, I wish that I could see Leslie Odom Jr. do this. Specifically, specifically Leslie Odom Jr., but the whole original cast. When people pose this sort of musical theater question of like, what would you see if you could see anything? I would go back and see Hamilton at the public before it was expensive and when it was in its most experimental stage. I was very glad to be able to see the original cast or most of the original cast because it was missing one core, one ensemble member. They advertised it as being the original cast, but her name is Betsy Struxness. I don't remember who it was. I know there was one person, yeah. Wasn't it wasn't. a different Peggy or something in the one that we saw on TV versus the original cast? I don't know. I've seen somebody else interviewed. I think it was a chorus member. I think it was a dancer. Right. That is so selfish of you, Sam. I'd go back and see our American cousin and maybe stop the assassination of oh, Abe Lincoln. But, you know, he got you. <laughs> Sam, have you been in for Hamilton? I know your brother has. I have. I was in for that Chicago production. I was in for the Alexander Hamilton, the alternate, who goes on. Alexander Hamilton, the principal actor, he goes on six shows a week. And then there are two shows that an alternate goes on. And I was in for that role. Made it through a few rounds. Yeah. Now I'm growing up my hair so I can be in consideration again. All this, this technical <laughs> lingo in for, that doesn't mean yeah. audition. <laughs> in audition. Gotcha. Like interviewing for the role, basically. Yes. It's some tricky material. Really? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that's yeah, was, If you might imagine. When I was in for it, I hadn't seen the show yet. I hadn't listened to much rap even. And that was actually, this brings me back to a point that I was <laughs> going to make earlier, where while I think that Hamilton is not necessarily the apex of American rap or a very reliable form of learning U.S. history, it represents the intersection between musical theater, rap, and American history in a way that no other piece does. So for anybody who is approaching it from the world of musical theater or from the world of rap or from the world of U.S. history, it might open up these avenues to approach the material that you ordinarily wouldn't find yourself listening to or watching. And that's what it did for me with rap. And I started listening to Dre and Biggie and Tupac. And now I listen to rap all the time. I hadn't listened to it prior to Hamilton. And now I... I enjoy listening to rap a lot. I say that as I sound like the whitest person. Oh, I enjoy listening to rap a lot. <laughs> I'm half white and half Asian, so I, uh, hipness is, it doesn't come with the territory necessarily. I have a question for you, Sam, because I assume you are trained as a singer. Did preparing yourself for Hamilton cause you to reach out for any new training that maybe you wouldn't for any other musical you were in for? 
I did go in for a voice lesson to work on it, and it's a different technique. Rapping is a, it requires a different technique than musical theater singing, where in musical theater you're trying to open up your mouth and clear the way for between your vocal cords and the audience. You're trying to clear the way to make as open a sound as possible, you know, and that's very traditional classic musical theater, which is what I'm used to singing. I'm a Rodgers and Hammerstein learner and low. That's the world in which I get cast in this business. But with rap, you're keeping your teeth close together because if you keep your mouth too open, it's impossible to get some of these really fast verses out. There is specific technique in order to make that happen, but ultimately it feels very similar to some forms of musical theater for me. I think of rap being sort of this freer, what we call patter song, where, you know, in musical theater, you have their legato ballads, and then there are patter songs that are sort of... Oh, Brian uh, has done one for us before. Oh, really? He's familiar with the modern major general song. Which, actually, it's referenced in Hamilton. That's right. It is. I'm a model of a modern major general... The venerated Virginian veteran whose men are all lining up. I saw that whole lyric deconstructed talking about internal rhyme and just sort of all the different things that... So I don't know if I shared any of this with you. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal from 2016 called How Does Hamilton, the Nonstop Hip-Hop Broadway Sensation, Tap Rap Master Rhymes to Blur Musical Lines? And actually, it says, find out with our algorithm. So I'll share that with you. But it was just from a linguistic standpoint, it was really interesting to see the shenanigans going on and, and the strong rhyming and the weak rhyming and the internal rhyming and the assonance and consonants and all the things that are happening and they support each other and they, they're more than the sum of their parts in terms of why it's so pleasing or why it's so driving. And it's an unusual way to get an earworm because it's not how you normally get things stuck in your head the way that earworms normally work with kind of the anticipation beat or the, the tune. But you can't do that for two and a half hours worth of a musical. You can deconstruct a couple lines or a couple bars, but I think at a certain point I was just saturated and it just I, it wasn't going in anymore. Did you watch it with closed caption? Yes, I did, which I only looked at sometimes. I felt like when the lyrics were happening really quickly, I did. But you never enjoyed the jokes as much with closed caption because the timing is wrong. So I tried to avoid it when it was a little more dialogue or when it was things that I could make out. I really enjoyed watching it with captioning, partially because I felt like I could sing along finally. Like I always knew the tunes, but I didn't know the words. And I was like, I felt like so cool. And which means that I was probably like looking like such an idiot singing along. Did you have the karaoke microphone while you're doing it? (laughs) (laughs) I was on the stationary bike and I was just trying to rap. It was really sad. So the mix of rapping and it sounds like Brian did not want any more rapping. (sighs) That there was enough rapping because the rapping is so rapid fire, it is hard to take in. And if the whole show was rapping, well, then you would just get overwhelmed in 10 minutes. But there's a nice mix of a lot of different musical styles. I know that Lin-Manuel Miranda thinks of this as a mixtape. And this was originally conceived as not even a musical, but a song cycle. And the theme, the lyrics that are binding everything together so you can actually have a lot of more more variety in the music than you otherwise would. Is that unusual for a musical to be so eclectic that it seems like if you're saying, we're doing a rap musical, then there would be a lot more rapping actually than there is. There are a handful of musicals that have that sort of eclectic style purposefully. I don't know that they are as cool or objectively good as Hamilton is. I think of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which, to be fair, I will come right out and say is not my favorite show and may be in 
my least five favorite shows. <laughs> it's like, this is the country western number, and here's the reggae number, and here's the et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. There's the Elvis impersonation number. I think that in that format, it's a little gimmicky. It doesn't feel as gimmicky for me personally watching Hamilton. It, it seems a little bit more nuanced than like, here's this number, here's this number, you know? Yeah, it flows nicely from one to the other in a way that a lot of other musicals don't, probably because there's no dialogue. Can I just say that I did see Donny Osmond live in Joseph Technical, the Dreamcoat, since I have so few uh, musical theater creds, the fact that I saw that. I think to finish off the uh, treating it as music, I think talking about him casting himself, and that's, I think, part of the reason... Sam, you're you're saying that how musical theater got less popular in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, I think that a lot of that ultimately I would blame on the Beatles, that pre-Beatles, you did have people singing cover tunes for musicals, but then singing cover tunes itself went out of style. There are always super popular cover tunes. There are always people in the American Idol sort of mold who are just singers. But that sort of wasn't the cool thing for quite a while, and it probably still isn't. But because Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote this himself, like this has that auteur quality. You know, I know musical theater has auteurs, certainly. It has Sondheim, it has Andrew Lloyd Webber, certainly counts even if you say think that he is like the least common denominator composer, not a Bob Dylan figure, but certainly Sondheim and many others. But the fact that he's out there not only being the mastermind behind it, but then performing it himself it seems like that gives it more of that traditional rock credibility that maybe, I don't know if that would, it was instrumental in its success. What did you guys think about, because on the one hand, I admire it because of that, but on the other hand, objectively, should he have cast himself if he was purely using in the same way that the other actors were cast based on their talent? This is something I don't know. Sam, do you know why he cast himself or did he not intend to, do you know if it was always his plan or were the producers like, yeah, you've got to do this? I don't know. I think that Lin-Manuel Miranda is a brilliant writer. I think he's also a brilliant businessman. I honestly don't know how it happened, but just like when I watch Moana with my niece and I wonder why is Lin-Manuel singing this song in Moana? And I wonder, did he negotiate for that in his contract? Did he write the song and say, yeah, I'll write these songs. Give me one song to sing, knowing that it would lead to royalties in a different way than just having written the songs. I think that he's a smart businessman when it comes down to it, and this is a business. I assume that he wrote it thinking that he was going to be in it, that he was going to play the title character, like he did with In the Heights, where he played the lead role, Usnavi. I agree. He's a really talented writer, and he's a talented rapper, but you could definitely tell the difference between his singing and the other people. Now, that being said, I don't always love the character the most who has the best singing voice. I love the best actor. And I think he did act the hell out of it. It was weird seeing like Leslie Ono Jr. sing every note just so perfectly with such nuance. And then hearing Lynn like act his way through some of the stuff that he couldn't sing as well. But that being said, I think a lot of people were excited to see it probably because they're like, oh my God, this guy did everything. So it was probably a smart business move, right? I think you're right there, Erica. I think people love a phenomenon. And in the movie world, right, it's the person who directs and writes and even acts in that thing. And they're often not the strongest actor. And I'm not looking at you, Kevin Costner, for Dances with Wolves. And I'm definitely not looking at you, Quentin Tarantino, and anything you ever did. And the other thing is, I think there's a lot of ego involved. And, you know, why not want to be the person who is at the center of things? And I don't pretend to know 
what's in Lin-Manuel Miranda's heart. But if it's something he could do, why would he let that stop him? You know, years ago, I did a show with Robert Westenberg. He was a big time Broadway actor, especially in the 90s. It was in Into the Woods in the original cast. And he was directing me in this show. And I was like, Bob, why aren't you just playing this role? Because he'd cast somebody else. And he's like, no, I'm directing. And I was like, yeah, you could do both though. He goes, Erica, if you're signing yourself up for extra jobs, you're never going to do as well as you could if you had just focused your efforts on the one thing that you're really good at. And I've realized since then that pretty much every cast I've been a part of where the director has also tried to be in the cast, it really does suffer. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit different with writing it because you can step back a little bit and let somebody else take the director's eye view, but it's going to wear on you. You're just going to be, I mean, physically, you're going to be tired at the end of the day after you've written everything and listened to everybody else. And then also you're trying to do your own acting role. I mean, I'm all for authenticity. And like, I remember being pretty appalled reading some reviews of The Nightmare Before Christmas saying, you know, Danny Elfman did the score to that and Danny Elfman sang the title role. And like, oh, he shouldn't have cast himself in that. He should have, you know, gotten a real singer. Like, first of all, the guy is a real singer, but he's a rock and roll real singer. And that's not to the the hoity-toity musical theater operatic standards that some people would like to see. But, you know, it was continuous with the other people that did voices on that show, you know, that he had comedians, he had Paul Rubens. Catherine O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara doing parts. Like, there's no reason to, you know, and I thought he sounded great. And so, same thing, it's just that, so, you know, if it had been a one-man show of Lin-Manuel Miranda, that completely would have gotten behind. It's just the slight jarring contrast between having that auteur self-expression thing next to the larger-than-life performers we got to have it both ways because we had the future casts, which I guess those of you that have seen multiple casts can appreciate that. The little bit that I saw of another cast online, it just seemed wrong, you know, because <laughs> I'm sort of used <laughs> to this now. It seems that there's something about musical theater, you know, one of the things that's great about it is that every performance is different, that it is not frozen, that you can have different interpretations. It's not stuck to one person, whereas a recorded piece of music, even an album by a person who does travel around with a band performing it differently every night, it still gets frozen in people's heads in that that one set of interpretations, that one nuance. And so has something gone wrong with Hamilton, both in the soundtrack becoming so popular and now this filmed version, like that's the definitive version. So that it sort of, does that ruin the other versions for other people? No, we're used to that in musical theater. Well, as musical theater performers, I'm just wondering the wider public, like if, if you'll sort of even want to accept that. I don't even mean like me coming in and playing a part. I mean, like when I watch people, oftentimes I'll like the person who did it the second or the third time or fourth time because it's just a very different interpretation. It's just, it's like listening to jazz, right? You usually don't listen to one jazz tune by the same person. A jazz tune becomes a standard because you're listening to it by several other people singing it, playing it, whatever. So I think it only adds to that legacy of it. Of course, some people are always going to prefer the original. And some people are going to like the sound of music movie better than anything they ever see on stage. What I really appreciated about seeing this taped stage performance of Hamilton, as opposed to a lot of the very recent trend of live musicals, and even more than that, the film adaptations of musicals like Sweeney Todd and Les Mis, what I appreciate about it is that I was looking at a bunch of musical theater performers performing musical theater. Instead of 
what happens, what is a part of the trend of, of popularizing musical theater again in these film adaptations, in these live one-night events of Grease Live, The Wiz Live. In these things, you have musical theater performers. In Les Mis, Hugh Jackman started out in musical theater. He rose to prominence in musical theater, doing Oklahoma, doing Boy From Oz, and then he became Wolverine. He became this megastar. Russell Crowe, is not a musical theater performer. And you can tell when you watch the show, when you watch the movie. There's a lot of stunt casting that happens here because in order to get the right demographics into the theater, you have to cast Wolverine, you have to cast the Gladiator, you have to cast Catwoman, despite the fact that they might not be as well-trained as Leslie Odom Jr. or Renee Lee Goldsberry, you know? And so seeing people who are actually experts in the field representing the field is something that should have been happening all along. But I think that it's beneficial for people to see musical theater performed the way that it's intended to be performed and not necessarily some sort of A-list interpretation of what that could be with people that aren't necessarily experienced enough for the form. Are we actually, because I feel like with all the camera angles and the swooping around and so close to King George's face that we're getting spit on us, nobody experiences Hamilton that way. It's a a weird thing that unless you're in the cast, you're not getting. And even then, it's very cinematic the way it's filmed, even though it's stagey the way it's being put on. I think a couple of things about that, because that's just live presentation of anything. When you watch a close-up of a pitcher throwing a fastball, throwing a strike. I'm, I'm not a sports fan, but, you know, <laughs> obviously. But you killed it, man. You, you just <laughs> nailed it. I said a couple of terminology, you know. I said pitcher, I said strike. But nobody gets that shot of the close-up. You're sitting in the bleachers. You're, you're getting a shot of his head from 100 yards away. And I do think that something is lost in translation. I do think that you're better off sitting in the bleachers, flagging down the hot dog guy, because you're getting the actual presentation of the form as it's intended. That's the same thing, whether it's theater or a sporting event. Yeah, something is lost in translation when you film something that is intended to be seen live. Does anyone know if the night that was recorded, there were cameras or flying things in the way of the audience? There must be some making ofs on Disney Plus. I haven't bothered watching yet. But I, I don't know if the audience that night had a discount knowing that there was going to be a, an eye-in-the-sky camera or things on booms filming stuff, or if it was all done in the wings. The close-ups were added later with no audience. That's what I heard. I don't know about all the close-ups, but yeah. Yeah, I assume they had a, um, kind of like they do for soccer, right, where they have like some of the cameras up high on cords and they're moving them back and forth from up above and things like that. I, I think you could do that without having too much audience disturbance. The idea of, of seeing a shot that you wouldn't necessarily get in the theater... I also appreciated as a musical theater actor. The first show that Erica and I worked on together was a production of uh, Into the Woods in Boston at the Lyric Stage Company. And I remember standing on stage at the end of the show, I was playing Rapunzel's Prince, who was playing Cinderella. And, you know, I'm a supporting character, so I'm standing sort of in the back as everyone goes into this final tableau moment. And I'm standing there seeing the backs of my colleagues' heads and seeing the spotlights shining through them and, and sort of through the haze, seeing this halo around my friends and colleagues and thinking, man, I have the best seat in the house and nobody that buys a ticket gets to see this. Nobody gets this close. Nobody has this view. This is just, it's mine. There's no way that I can possibly share this with anybody. My own subjective experience, you know? And so when you talk about these, you know, seeing these close-ups that you don't necessarily see from the bleachers, you don't see from the nosebleeds obstructed viewing seats, 
you're getting a little taste of what it's like to be on stage with those actors. You're getting a little taste of what it's like to experience this theatrical moment firsthand as opposed to from the audience. And that's what I would say is beneficial about that. I was thinking that some of the subtlety with which they're performing, I can't help but think that that's just lost to most of the audience, that they're just too damn far away. Certainly anywhere that I would be sitting in a theater there, I would just see that there is a figure somewhere. I would get the, the presence of being in the audience and that sort of communal experience, but I just think these are complimentary. Yeah, I think it's more complimentary than anything. It was <laughs> disturbing to see how much spit was coming out of Jonathan Groff's mouth, but it was so funny to watch. Did you guys watch the Twitter blow up about that? He said that he also sweat so much that he is soaked on like the outside and inside after every performance. He's like, I'm just wet. I'm just always wet when I perform. <laughs> he, had a, he had a good attitude about it. Speaking of good attitudes, I wanted to talk for a sec about, we have some articles here about some of the people who weren't such big fans of Hamilton. A lot of people are saying they they glossed over the fact that we have people of color who are portraying these white founding fathers who were slave owners. And, you know, they were having a, a moral issue with that. And there have been some public outcries and like hashtag cancel Hamilton. And I thought Lin-Manuel handled that so incredibly well. Did you guys see what he said about it? He didn't tell anybody like, nope, this was not my intention. How dare you think this? We put so much time into this. He was just like, listen, I took this book and I tried to turn it into a two and a half hour musical with as much information, but still as entertaining as possible. And basically, I'm glad you guys are watching it and you have your opinions and they're, sure, it's valid. Your criticisms are valid. I couldn't do everything in two and a half hours. And this is all addressed in an article we read in O Magazine called Lin-Manuel Miranda Response to the Hamilton is Cancelled Controversy by Samantha Vincenti. What I liked about this article was about halfway through, there was a little poll, a nice binary question. Do you think Hamilton's flaws outweigh its value as a musical? And there are two buttons. Yes, it's too problematic to enjoy. Or no, nothing can make me unlove satisfied. And I think if we just answer those questions, we'll be done. Well, let's really just boil it down to that binary choice, shall we? So what did you think of this as a political statement, this whole musical? I was surprised that it wasn't more overtly political, actually seeing the whole thing, because you know it's always just represented as the creators are very political, and this is supposed to be you know on the right side of current issues regarding race and immigration and things. And those things are mentioned, but they're not like the focus of... The musical, I mean, it's like, should we have a big financial system? Like, that's the main political thing that was decided through Hamilton's success. It's just hard to watch this with pre-2016 eyeballs, Mark. I, we're just, I feel I'm calibrated so differently to where I would have been at the time this recording was made, or certainly when Hamilton was released or first debuted years before. It's a historical artifact already. You know what I think is great is... I would imagine, and I've heard from some of my BIPOC friends, that it would be so fulfilling to do a musical about politics that's not necessarily about race when you're so often cast in roles that force you to sit talk about race. And this is one where we have such wonderful... What would you call this casting, actually, Sam? You're more of an expert on what the category of this would be. I would consider this inclusive casting or colorblind casting. Okay. So in an inclusive casting like this, 
you're doing a show that is about politics and it's about our founding fathers, but you're just getting to play those founding fathers. Like you don't have to make a statement about, oh, I am a black person playing this person. And I think that honestly, the most political thing about the show is the casting. It's a musical that, yes, they, it does gloss over the fact that these men, they wrote women out of the Constitution. They wrote their own wives out of the rights for human beings that they were setting aside. And they owned human beings as slaves. And it does gloss over that. It does. It mentions it. The show doesn't like completely say, oh, these guys were totally good and everything's fine. But it does gloss over it. There's a moment where Thomas Jefferson says, Sally, be a lamb and and open that talking about this letter that he got from the president. And that is Sally Hemings, the slave who he, you know, had this relationship with and, and fathered children that he enslaved. And when you look into the history of Sally Hemings in general, you know, they were in France together. She was a free woman. And he was like, come back to America with me. And she negotiated for rights and privileges for herself and her children. But they were still slaves. They came back to America knowing that they would have more privileges than your average slave, but they were still Thomas Jefferson's slaves. And it's problematic that that is not discussed as much. But I think that the point of the show isn't saying the founding fathers are good people, were good people. I think the overarching thesis of the show is that anybody in this country stands a chance. Everybody has a shot. And it's the sort of American dream that is very quickly being disproven by the current system of oligarchical capitalism, let's call it. But it's more about, look what this immigrant, this person of mixed race, look what this person did and how much impact he had on the formation of the government as we know it today. And it's less about the perfection of these men. And it even shows he cheated on his wife. And it's a major part of the show. He basically aided in the killing of his own son. He was not perfect. And none of these men were. And it doesn't argue that they were. It just, it argues that if you have a goal, if you are, if there's something that you want to change about this country, you have to work for it. You can be the change that you want to see. And I think that that is something that is so appropriate for today's day and age. But again, you know, this musical came out in what, 2015, 2016, and it was a very different world. You know, we had the first black president was in office and now we have white nationalists walking the streets in plain clothes, just happily and proudly proclaiming that this country is theirs. And I think that there is nothing more political than in that world, in this world, with these white nationalists saying, this country is ours, saying, no, anybody could be a founding father. You just have to found it. You just have to make strides yourself. I think their explicit approach was these people who are lauded as founding the country, they're the ones who voted on the Constitution. Of course, they needed other people. Of course, this great man theory of history is really bullshit that, you know, we have to acknowledge the contributions of a lot of people. But the fact that, you know, these select people signed this document and things, they're everyone's legacy, right? So this casting it in this, I don't think you can't say race blind because it was like a conscious choice that we're going to cast people of color in here. So it's not blind, it's inclusive, as you said. But, you know, I can see the argument against that by saying, no, these so-called founding fathers are simply overrated, and we just need to spend more of our cultural energy telling the stories of people who have not already been lauded rather than another round of mythology on the same people. Of course, Hamilton, I think, was picked because he was among the founding fathers, not the most lauded, and then Manuel Miranda, you know, saw him as a scrappy, someone who was dismissed as a bastard, an immigrant, an upstart. You know, so I, I think we can't just merely emphasize his privilege as a white man 
etc. I, I think you can accept that both sides of the debate about how we should do history have merit. I think that's exactly right, Mark. And a couple things can be true at the same time. And these other stories should be told. And if they're told well, I think that would be great. I, mean, I don't think anyone fares very well in this story. And if you had hero worship going in for some of these people, you might not have it coming out in quite the same way. And that's a good outcome of this particular piece of theater. There's an interesting moment that I wonder, I think you can either credit this to Chris Jackson, who plays George Washington, or the director, Thomas Kale, or both, more than anybody else. But there's a moment at the very end when Eliza's saying, you know, I raise funds for the Washington Monument. And George Washington says, she tells my story. And right after that, she says, uh, you know, I speak about the horrors of slavery. And there's this moment of, of her saying that with Chris Jackson playing George Washington behind her, like quizzically being like, what about slavery? And then realizing like, okay, I can see where this is bad. And it's like this moment of it wasn't in the writing. And I wonder if it was directorial or actorial, if it was Chris Jackson's choice or if it was Thomas Kale's choice or, you know, if it was discussed in that moment of like, well, here I am on stage right behind her as she's talking about slavery. I am playing George Washington, who owned slaves. And maybe he comes to the recognition that what he did was wrong, but it, it does gloss over that fact. And, and if there's hero worship in the show at all, I think it is of George Washington as the sort of father figure of the country that is so such a good person as to step away from power as opposed to just claiming it for his entire life. I do think going back to this being the intersection of rap, musical theater, and history, people going to see a Broadway musical and viewing it as an accurate depiction of history, they're in the wrong place. It's like watching any piece of art and assuming that it's going to tell an accurate, give an accurate picture of, of what history was. That's not the intention. If it inspires you to look into history, then that's great. And I think that that's what Hamilton is doing, is it inspires people to look into the history and see what is accurate, what's not. But its primary function is to entertain. You're so right. And why is it that we care so much about certain pieces being accurate politically, but we don't at all give a shit about like appropriately looking at how DNA is actually used in a court case and what scientists can actually do in a lab? You know what I mean? Like there are just so many ways in which popular culture doesn't accurately depict so many things. And it is interesting to see the, the things that are nitpicked as this should be canceled. I think that while the conversation about purity does have some validity, for people of color, the concept of purity has never been a good thing in the history of the world. That's true for musical theater as well. If you're looking at this piece as, well, it needs to be pure, then you're A, you're missing the point of the show. But B, the concept of purity, of being historically accurate, is used against people of color in this industry. To say, oh, well, you know, you're doing 1776 and none of those guys were black, so we don't have any jobs for black guys right now. And that's a problem because it's the only industry where you can say that. You don't go into education or medicine or science and see some company saying, oh, we're only hiring white people this year. We're only hiring this color person, this color person. But somehow, when you're talking about purity of history, people look at musical theater and they say, oh, well, it doesn't make any sense to have people of color in 1940s Iowa. And what that does is it further creates this disparity in the industry when it comes to employment numbers and among different demographics. And that's ultimately what, when I talk about color-conscious casting and, and inclusive casting, that's ultimately my argument, is that employment numbers should be reflective of all demographics. 
And if they're not, then there's a problem because we're only further perpetuating this disparity. And that is, it's a disparity that involves like the psychological concepts of privilege, but also the very real, very tangible economic differences. And you look at at the Broadway stage, and if you see 90% of them are white, then 90% of the people on stage are getting a living wage. They're getting health and pension benefits. And if you are denying people of color those opportunities just because of the way they look, you're denying them health and pension, you're denying them a living wage, and that is unconscionable in 2020. When a stage production requires so much suspension of disbelief anyway, that who cares if there are three sisters that are obviously, by looking at them, not biologically related? It just doesn't matter. It's like, just accept it. The only time that I will really try to insist on appearance accurate casting is in like time travel dramas or anything where there's a flashback to children versions of the adult characters then i'm very picky about did they find a kid that looks like that you know a does this look like bruce willis as a kid (laughs) unless you were making a thing of it and making all the kids of a different racial background than the adults just to poke at that convention of trying to be accurate about it as long as it was not confusing it'd be fine that brings to mind the now disgraced Louis C.K., but I think of in his show, Louis, which I believe has been canceled too. I haven't seen anything, but I remember his, his ex-wife in the, in the show is, is a black woman. And in flashbacks, she's like a, a redheaded blonde woman. And it is jarring in that moment, but I remember watching that being like, oh, is that confusing or does it actually make me think about, make me invest in this story more in some ways? I think it's a little bit of both. And he said in interviews that it was all based on the energy and this the feeling you got off of the people who we cast and what he wanted to convey. And I remember at the time being just a little confused of what was happening. But once, like anything, once you catch on, it becomes a non-issue so quickly. And you're right, Mark. When people get used to this, where there's going to be no coming back from it. And that's that's the hope. There was a, a much ado about nothing version, uh, movie version, I think, in the early 90s that Kenneth Branagh directed, where it was people of all different races who couldn't have been related to each other based on how they looked. And he just said, Shakespeare is international. And that was it. It didn't detract at all from the movie. Yeah, I think Shakespeare productions have traditionally been a lot more open with that, it seems. By traditionally, I mean in the last, at least in my lifetime, I've seen that not matter, late race not matter nearly as much. And I think opera for a long time has been much more inclusive than theater. Obviously, we could have a whole other hour on this political issues involved in here. I think it's actually a good thing that even though their politics are so, the creator's politics are so liberal, that we get a story here that everybody feels like they can be a part of. That, you know, Mike Pence goes and sees it. And yes, they kind of lecture him directly and say, I hope this gives you some sort of takeaway that will lead you to more inclusive attitudes and policies. But there's nothing in the show that would make anybody, I I think, super uncomfortable because nobody's going to identify with either Southern slaveholders or the British imperialists. Yes, they are. (laughs) You think so? I mean... Right now, probably. I don't know. There's, I guess there's an appeal to unity that really is like, we can't offend anyone. Let's just appeal to the least common denominator and an aspirational unity that like is not going out of its way to scold anybody that's alive now. If you want to be a crazy, you know, I'm sure there's a monarchist out there who is incensed by 
<laughs> the the portrayal of the king, but yeah, he's the he's the attorney general. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Sam, for joining us. This is a, a great way to finally. We've been talking about this topic for a long time, just you know, to have what is the biggest thing in musicals, and we just got lucky that it we had this opportunity with the release of the movie version to actually all see it and talk about it in a way that would really connect with everybody. And uh, you were just a wonderful, unexpected addition to this. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast. Yay. Thanks, Sam. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks, listeners. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.